Let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going into uh, our study here this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. Lord, that, uh, that's incredible. Not that we can't believe it. But we know who we are, and you know us even better. And even while we were yet sinners, you sent your Son to die for us. That is a demonstration of your love. And we thank you for it. We thank you for it. Today we're going to spend our time in your word, and, and that too is a gift of your love to us. That we might read and understand and know who you are. And I pray that you challenge our hearts with your word this morning. Draw us back to an understanding. If maybe we've had a difficult week, we've kind of lost sight of things. This would be a good time for us to see you again. To know who you are and to have our faith strengthened. Maybe we've been hurt over the past week. You are the God who heals. Sometimes we get confused, and yet you're the God who guides us in all truth. Sometimes we just need to know, again, who you are, that we might walk in your way. Lord, you know the work that needs done in our hearts today, and as each of us might represent something different. It's not beyond you, because you are God. And we have come here today now to learn of you. So challenge us with this text, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Psalm 24. It's where we started last week, and we're going to continue on this course for a little while. Psalm 24. Who is this King of Glory? Who is this King of Glory? That's a question that's raised toward the end of the psalm. Twice it's brought up in verse number 8. Again in verse number 10. Who is this King of Glory? Well, the answer is in the text too. David, our psalmist, writes out very clearly who this one is. And what we should do, our response to that. Verse number 1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, who has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, even seek your face, even Jacob. Oh, Selah is the way it ends, verse 6, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Now that question is a, a great question. Who is the King of Glory? Here we are in April 2015. Many of you have grown up perhaps in church circles. Perhaps even in this church. You have heard it 
question, who is the king of glory, and you have the answer. If I asked you that this morning, you would say, well, it's the Lord. Or you might say, God is the king of glory, or you might even say, Jesus Christ is the king of glory. Your answer is quick. You've been brought up to think that and know that, right? So, we have answers. We come to a church that seeks to worship the king of glory. We sing songs that worship the king of glory. Now, I don't believe, I I hope this is true, but I don't believe that anyone here this morning would question that the Lord is the king of glory. Well, what if we took the same question out on the streets of America and asked them, who is the king of glory? Would they be so quick to answer the Lord is the king of glory? Would they be that quick to answer like we might be? I would guess that a good portion of our world, this country, would not see things as we do. There was a polling done back November 2013, not that long ago. A Harris poll that uh, went out to ask folks whether or not they believe in God, this country. 74% said they did. 74%. You say, well, that's a pretty good number. That's 26% that say there isn't. 74% there is says there is a God. Now, break that down a little bit, and this is what they add to that. 72% believe that miracles happen. 72. 68% believe there is a heaven. Isn't that interesting? Oh, there's a God, but there's not everyone who believes there's a God believes there's a heaven. Then the numbers keep dipping. 68% believe that Jesus is God. 68%. 65% believe he rose from the dead. Now, do you find that strange? More people believe he's God than those who believe he rose from the dead. I said, well, that's an odd number. 64% think there is an afterlife. Now, we started with 74% believing in God, and only 64% think there's an afterlife. Same group. I find those interesting numbers, don't you? If you keep working your way down, 58% believe there is a devil. 58. We're down to almost half now. 58%. 57% believe in the virgin birth. By the way, those who believe in evolution, 47%, they say the number is going up. Remarkable. That's remarkable to me, especially in light of the fact that we have so many scientific things to show otherwise. That number grows. 42% of Americans believe in ghosts. They start this list of UFOs and and such, and the numbers are all incredible. Down to 24% believe in reincarnation. 24% believe in reincarnation. Now, This is what's interesting. You take these numbers and such as they are. 19% of Americans describe themselves as very religious. 19%. One out of every five. 
19% believe they are very religious, whereas 40% describe themselves as somewhat religious. Somewhat. What is that? <laughs> somewhat religious. 40%. Let's see, that would mean if I break my week up and only 40% of that is going to be dedicated to anything religious, how many days would that be? Less than half. So you might give three days out of seven to anything pertaining to spiritual things at all. Now, what a pattern that would set. Three days, when some people will spend three services in a week, right? Morning service, evening service, Wednesday night. Would that constitute enough religion to make 40%? Interesting numbers. But I read all these things and I ask you this. Are you surprised? Looking out on the landscape of our world, are you surprised by numbers like these? Probably not. But if you went out to that same world and said, Jesus Christ is King. The Lord is the King of glory. If you made that declaration, will they recognize it? Will they? I don't think they will, to tell the truth. Even down to those who say they believe in God. If they're only somewhat religious, then they're not totally convinced, are they? That he is the king of glory. Now, if this world does not recognize him as the king of glory, does that mean he ceases to be that? No. He is the king of glory whether this world recognizes it or not. He is the king of glory. Let's define some terms, because I'm going to be using this often as we go through this. Let's, what is glory? He's the king of glory. Sometimes we say, I can't wait to go to glory. Right? It's our nickname we use for heaven. He's a king of glory. Now, some people will be content with thinking that's all it refers to. He's the king of heaven. And I think that's rather limiting. Although I would think certainly he is the king of heaven. I wouldn't just keep it as such a phrase like that, for it makes it imply that he's not king down here, but only up there. So I, I'm not too content with that phrase, just referencing heaven. Uh, the other word, as a matter of fact, you break down the word of uh, glory and you get such word as praise, uh, honor, even abundance is in that phrase. It, in the Hebrew word, it, it means all three of those, praise and abundance and honor. That speaks of glory. If you pull out the Greek word, the corresponding Greek word, it speaks of that opinion of praise or honor or glory, it even comes down to approval, kind of an interesting phrase. Just like this morning, I read to you uh, that God is worthy to receive glory, honor, and praise. Power, we have other words like that in the book of Revelation too. Who is the one giving it to him? I thought he already possessed it. Does he possess all power? Yeah. Does he possess all the glory? Yes. Then how could we possibly give it to him? You ever think that through? How do we give him glory? How do we give him power? This is 
Opinion. Really, the Greek word is your opinion. Your opinion. Worthy is the word we use here. Is he worthy? Have you concluded that he is worthy? That's an interesting word. That's the concept of glory. It has to do with his honor. The word king, we're going to use an awful lot too, and that's a simple concept to define. Majesty. We've sung that just a few minutes ago. Sovereign is a good word. I like that word very much. Sovereign. And by combining them too, those two together, he's the sovereign of honor. He is the highest of praise. He is supreme in reputation. He is first in rank. He's first in position. He's first in order. He's first in time. He is the king of glory. That's what David declares here in this psalm. Now, how do you go out and argue that point with someone? Somebody who's in that 24% that don't even believe in God. How do you tell them that he is the king of glory? How do you state it? How would David do it? If we were to ask him, of course, he, he wrote half of the book of Psalms. We have his name on some 75 of these Psalms out of 150. David would say things like this, like he started Psalm 19. You could see it if you backed up a little bit. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. He goes to creation as one of the evidences that he is the king of glory. Now here's a simple thing that we're going to work our way through as we study this text. If we do not recognize him as the king of glory, if we do not live as though he is the king of glory, if we do not speak that he is the king of glory, how will the world ever come to believe that? If we who know him don't say it and don't live that way, if we don't act like he is the king of glory? Do you think the world has a way to make up for our silence? Somehow, it's going to make up for our negligence in saying these things. David was quick throughout the Psalms to declare him. King of glory. King of glory. King of glory. He never wanted to stop with that declaration. So here in Psalm 24, it's no surprise as he makes that his main point, he begins with facts. The Lord owns this world and all it contains. The earth is the Lord's, Psalm 24, 1, right? The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Where did he get the right to claim it? Where did he get that right to claim it as his own? Verse number 2 says, For, and it's going to give you the reason. Alright? For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, this description of the creation of the world, it's fascinating, but it's really quite more than that. When we start to think who is this king of glory, we have to start backing up in time for us anyway. 
And you've got to go back far. That's exactly what David does. He goes all the way back to creation, doesn't he? He goes back to creation, the beginning of all that we would know, uh, our earth, the inhabitants of our earth. Uh, who was here first? Let me ask you this. When it comes to glory, where did God get that? Where, where, where did he get his glory? Uh, was it... Uh, Bought? Did he buy his glory from someone else? Did he borrow it? Maybe he inherited his glory. Is that right? Maybe he wrestled it from somebody else. Is that where he got his glory? Is his glory used by someone else first? Is it a hand-me-down glory? Some of you younger siblings out there know what hand-me-downs are. You grow up in that world. Every fall, that little box was opened in the basement. My mom would take us down there and she'd open up that box. And then it was the clothes that my brothers used to wear. And all of a sudden they fit me. Oh, they're slightly out of date, but they fit me. Hand me downs. You know that story. Is that God's glory? Handed down to him from some other, used once before, borrowed. You know, when it comes to glory, we could say all these things were not true of him because God is number one when it comes to glory. It originates with him. It's the very beginning thought that we can have when it's related to Him. When we come to understand Him. When we even go back to creation, He already is the King of glory. He wasn't beginning to be. He wasn't working His way up to it like He was maybe at 80% so far. He is the King of glory. Even at the very beginning of what we could understand, He already is the King of Glory. So we we go back to a creation time and we we look at it and we say, who is this one who was here when everything started? The King of Glory. What else do we know from just that picture? The glory of the Lord rests in the concept of what He can do and what He has done that no one else can do And no one else has done. When you think of the word created, from nothing, isn't that a powerful phrase? Yet that's what God has done. Created from nothing. Everything else has been modified from something. God started with nothing and created. Isn't that powerful? We speak of what God can do, what no one else can do. This is the way it reads if we were reading Psalm 24 to the second verse from the Old Testament version uh, of the Greek translation. We call it the Septuagint. It starts, He Himself founded it. I like that little phrase. He Himself founded it. There's some emphasis there, isn't there? Double pronouns sitting in front of us. Personal pronouns. 
he himself. You know what's interesting? When Jesus speaks of himself in the Gospels, he used that same phrase over and over. And it's wonderful to see it. When, when I'm teaching my students uh, the Greek class, I say, whenever you see that combination, there, always put a himself in the middle of that. Because it makes it so much stronger. This is how Jesus said it. I myself am the good shepherd. What's that tell you? There is no other. He said, I myself am the light of the world. What's that tell you? There is no other. He said, I myself am the way and the truth and the life. And what does that tell you? There is no other. He said, I myself am the resurrection and the life. And what's that tell us? There is no other. And Psalm 24 says, He himself founded it. And what does that tell us? No one else. Only him. A very singular, powerful statement. He himself. And when it comes to his glory, by the way, this is interesting. In Isaiah 42, God gives an interesting dialogue here to Isaiah. He says in verse 5, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. You hear that combination? Let me read that to you again and think as I read. I am the Lord. He just described his creative ability. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. That's powerful, isn't it? Theologically, it, it brings up a very interesting thought. Because if God does not give his glory to another, how is it that Jesus is glorified too? Jesus himself said, the Father and I are one, right? Jesus had even prayed in John 17, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. There's a clear-cut statement here. Let me make it simple for you. If only God gets the glory, and Jesus shares it with the Father, then who must Jesus be? He is God. That's the conclusion. The only thing you can draw from that. The psalmist says so clearly, He himself is the King of glory. He himself is the King of glory. He himself founded the earth upon the seas, it says. Now here's the second thing I want to show you about our Lord as the King of glory. 
such a, a definite statement about his creative skills, he founded it. That's the word, founded. It's been the choice of words in English translations for well over 400 years now. Founded. I've dug through most of the common uh, English translations out there, and you're looking at it right now, and you see the word founded. He founded it. He founded it. He founded it. What is that? That's to set it down. We use the word foundation from that word. It's to set it down. The Greek is to lay a base. Now, do you think it's remarkable that the Lord has, has set it down, founded the earth? Probably not. You're, you've come to believe he's a creator anyway, right? So you're not surprised that he is, has created the foundation, that he set it down. If you go over to ancient beliefs and ask them, what did he set it on? People say, well, there's a pole. There's some pole out there. He set it on the middle of a pole. Others say, no, he put it on the back of a turtle. Did you know that? That explains the earthquakes, doesn't it? Turtle moved. There are those who believe. He said it. Some say, Greek mythology, he actually said it on the shoulders of Atlas. Well, they, they debate over that. They say it wasn't just the earth, it was everything. And so if you look at a picture of what was on Atlas' shoulder, it has the heavens. It's the whole celestial thing, the stars and the moons and everything else, all in one great sphere set on his back, including the earth. And, and they believe it's, it's set that way. Now, we as, as human beings say if we're going to build anything or set anything, we set it on something solid, we set it on a foundation so that it won't move. We're even taught if you're going to build a house, build it on the rock, right? Are you ready for this? What did he set it on? Verse 2. Do you see the word seas there? Now that's a stable thing. Think about it for a minute. The seas? The seas. That's what it says, right? He set it upon the seas. Churning waves. Tides that come in and out. Storms that will raise them higher and, and sink them so deep. Does this say stability to you? No. That's not where we would generally build something. But even the Greek says, upon, resting upon the seas, he laid the earth. You say, well, this is interesting. What's that mean? That means he's done something no one else would do. Or can do. When he founded the earth, even the route in which he went was not the way that the normal person would have thought it through. See, they all build on something. He doesn't need something to give it strength. I find that interesting. And then he adds to this, because it's such a unique thing, the second half of the verse, it says he established it upon the rivers, Right? That's a flowing current, a river, a flowing current, something running, moving. I've gone to Niagara Falls. Just before you go over the falls, which I've never done, but just before you might go over the falls, there is a river. And if you get caught in the river, you're going over the falls. Because the current is that strong. 
I'd seen the Mississippi River. Huge body of water. Seen the Ohio River. I've seen the Cimarron River. All right. Go back to some more powerful things, right? We've seen large bodies of water. Rivers running. You've seen them in the flood stage? Incredible. We've seen the power of moving water. We all sat there in front of the TVs when we saw that tsunami go across Japan. Remember that? How it swept things in its path? Who would build upon a moving current? Who's capable of that? What does it say? The Lord established it upon the rivers. When I was looking at that, I said, Lord, that's really remarkable. That's not what we call good foundation. But that's what you're capable of doing. That's where you've set it down. To show us something, I believe. How unique you are. There's no one like him. No one like him. Or can do what he has done. He says that he founded them upon the waters. He did this. He established them upon the rivers. Now, if founding means to set it down, establishing means to set it up. It's where you make it strong. The word prepared is actually here. Prepared. We use such verses like uh, in the book of Revelation, how the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven prepared as a bride. We've got that picture in our mind. We see in such places like Hebrews 11, where God has prepared a city for them. We see this verse, and we've heard it before in 1 Corinthians 2.9. Just as it is written, things which eyes have not seen and ear has not heard, and which has not entered into the heart of men, all that God has prepared for those who love him. That's the same word. Used over and over and over again. What God has prepared. In other words, it speaks of a definite plan. When you prepare something, it speaks of a definite plan. He does not act randomly, as that word is used so often anymore. He does not change according to circumstances. He's not a responder, folks. He's an initiator. He starts things. He established the earth, it says. He didn't create by time and choice and chance and mixtures of chemicals and such like that. He planned it. He established it. And even further than that, it means to fix something, to fasten something, to make it stable. A great thing you could speak of about our God. What he established is not going to be moved by someone else. What he sets up, it stands. When he fixes it, no one else is going to relocate it. That speaks of his unique glory. Because he holds all things together by himself. And what he makes, no one else can. And what he sets, no one else can move. And what he fastens, no one else can change. He is the king of glory. I was reading this morning, or listening rather, as uh, my audio Bible is reading through Esther. And there at the very start, 
there's a reference to the law of the Medes and the Persians. You know what that law is? Well, the concept of it. If it's written, it stays written. Right? You can't change it. You can't alter the law of the Medes and the Persians. You can't alter the preparation of our God. What he has established stays established. Now, why am I telling you all this this morning? I'm telling you the fact. He is the king of glory. I'm telling you by this illustration that David gave to us that what he founds and what he established will not change. And he can do it in the most unique situations. Even the most impossible. As far as we're concerned, that's the way he operates. We ought to live as those who know who he is. Don't wait for the world to give him glory. By all statistics, the possibility of that is getting fainter every year. You, Peter said, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that you, you, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You have been called by him to proclaim how excellent he is. We need to be mindful of that. But we need to be mindful of this as well. Who created you? He did. We read that this morning, didn't we? By his will, all things are created. Unless you're not created. You check lately? You're a created thing. By his will, he created you. Let me ask you a further, deeper question of that. Spiritually, who created you? Do you know? Spiritually speaking? Here's a couple of good verses for you. Let's try 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is a good one to memorize if you don't have it memorized and if you're looking for a verse to memorize this week. Alright? 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that means you have faith in Jesus Christ, he is your Lord and Savior. You belong to Him. We say you're saved. You're a Christian. Those terms we use all around. In Christ is the technical phrase. You're in Christ. Are you in Christ? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Or you may have the word creation there. Who created you? Not you. Not me. He does that work. He's the creator. Here's something interesting. You can check me on this. You go through scripture and find every single word that refers to creation. It is used of no one but God as the one who does it. Man cannot create. Only God can. Only God can. And if you are in Christ, you have been created by Him. You say, okay, well, that's a good verse. Try another one. How about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? 
Here's the second verse you ought to memorize. But this one is good too. Look at this. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship. I like one translation out there. I think it's the NIV that reads, We are his masterpiece. Not a neat phrase. We are his masterpiece. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. There's that phrase again. In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. That's the way he saves us. Created in Christ Jesus. And that's all it says, right? No. It adds a reason for good works. And what do we know about these good works? It says, which God prepared beforehand. Does it sound like he planned this out? Yes. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's accountability at the last phrase. What are we called to do? Walk in the plan that he had as he created you to live it out. We are his masterpiece. We are his workmanship. He created us. He created us. Now, we've just said he founded the world. And he has founded you too. But here's another thing we also read in that passage that he establishes. He established the world. He set it up. Here's some interesting things that uh, we find in the New Testament. Go over to Second Thessalonians for a minute with me. Second Thessalonians. Now the choice of word that you might have in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, you might have a different word. And I'll tell you what, verse 17, you might have the word established in there. That he might establish you. Uh, some might have the word strengthen. Strengthen your heart. You might have established your heart. The same definition comes from the Greek word sterizo. When I teach sterizo, I, I always think of steroids. I don't know why, I just hear it all the time. Steroids, what are they for? So you hit more home runs, right? To help the body, right? It's supposed to strengthen things. It's supposed to give it an advantage in some way or another. I don't understand all the medical. I don't understand all the chemical. I just know that they say, here, take this when you're feeling down, and you feel pretty good soon. It's good stuff. Steroids. Sterizo. It's the word to strengthen, to establish. Here's the concept of it. You take something that's a little wobbly, something that's not in its right place, and you move it and you set it to where it ought to look or face. And then you pour concrete all around it so it never moves. You got the idea? That's the word. When God sets something, it is not moved. Now, look at what Paul is saying here in this passage. He's talking to Thessalonians. If you were to study this chapter out, you'll find these Thessalonians have been rocked in their, in their hope because somebody told them, the rapture has already occurred, you missed it. Sorry. How would you like those words? Oh, they were shaking. Oh, it was a tough time for them. Paul's writing to them and says, that's false teaching. And the whole chapter deals with that. And then he gets to the end and he says, This is my prayer for you. Verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. 
In other words, this heart that's shaking in hope, may God set it in the right direction and pour concrete around it. Strengthen it so it does not move. Isn't that a beautiful prayer for someone? He does it again in the next chapter, chapter 3, verse number 3. And here, he's dealing with persecution. They're being dumped on with all kinds of persecution from the enemy. And he says, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Same word. He will set you, concrete it around so you do not move. That's the same word used way back at the beginning when God established the earth. He set it, and nobody can move it. You know, that's the work he's doing in your heart as a believer, too. That's how he, he does his thing. When he's the king of glory, he's not just the king of creation, he's the king of your life, too. And he is the one that founded your existence, spiritually and physically. He is the one who has set your heart, and he strengthens it. You see, sometimes we go through tough times. Maybe it's false teaching that rocks us, or maybe it's a form of persecution, and we haven't felt the the full weight of such things, but maybe we've had some degree of it. Sometimes we, we... get hit with things and we feel like we're on waves getting tossed around. You, you know when your faith is being tested. You know when you're being challenged. You know when it's hard out there and it's tough. We're tossed to and fro. Whose specialty is it to build on waters? Don't you like just the way that starts to sound? That's his specialty. That's why he works where no one else can. He builds upon the waters. He establishes upon the waters. Even the running currents, he's able to make you stand strong. There's a song way back from the 80s that uh, I heard many times on the radio by a man named Scott Wesley Brown. Just a simple little tune he sang. He said, there is no problem too big that God cannot solve it. There is no mountain too tall that God cannot move it. There is no storm too dark that God cannot calm it. And there is no sorrow too deep that he cannot soothe it. And if he carried the weight of the world upon his shoulders, I know, my brother, that he can carry you. He can carry you. I think there's a good application right there. We say he is the king of glory. Do we know that? Do we live like that? Do we speak of that? King of glory. The work he's done in our hearts. Heavenly Father, we come before you today as a congregation. We need you. We need you. I know at times we get occupied in our world and our our busyness and we act as though it's all dependent on our own strength, our own wisdom. We manage to get through the day somehow, and, and yet, all the while, you're the one who has been holding us by this hand. You're the one who loves us. You are our King of glory. And you're the one who gives us strength when nobody else can. You're the one who established us that nobody else could have done. You are the one who is the King of glory. You are our King. And I pray, Lord, that even though this world may not recognize such, that we do, 
that we live in light of it. Perhaps, Lord, they might see us and turn and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Work in our hearts and, and lives, Lord, this week. Remind us again how actively you are involved in every moment. The things that we face are prepared by you. You are sovereign. And may we live in light of that today and throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.